And hello out there to all you Brooklyn folk and beyond. Merry Christmas, Happy Kwanzaa, Happy Hanukkah, Happy New Year. Apologies for the tardiness of this episode of the Bedford and Sullivan podcast. Uh, technical difficulties on my end, but uh, alas, here we are. And without further ado, let me get right into it. Uh, <laughs> since we're about uh, ten minutes late, Michael Cole out in Bensonhurst. How was your holiday, Mike? Uh, holiday went well. You know, today's technical glitch just fits in with the rest of 2021, I guess. <laughs> hey, you know, it's it's a technical glitch, literal and otherwise. Uh, say, you know, say what you will about that. Rob Barnes out in Illinois. How was your holiday, Rob? Very nice, Sam. Thanks for asking. Happy holidays to both of you fine gentlemen. As a, as a very active musician this year who was shut down last year, I want to say that little ditty that we had playing for those 10 minutes is permanently ingrained as a wormhole in my ear. Thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there you go. Uh, And, uh, you know, I'm sorry that you now have the blog talk radio jingle or whatever they like to call that uh, permanently ingrained. Uh, uh, It's definitely a Interesting. I wouldn't necessarily call it a work of art, but it certainly falls into music nonetheless. Um, Would you like me to sing it? Let's. uh, No, that's okay. No, that's okay. Uh, For sure, for sure, we can uh, leave it to the imagination. Uh, But, but you know, Rob, I'm going to go to you first, since the last time that uh, that, excuse me, Mike and I talked about Gil Hodges, uh, he had yet to be inducted. So. If you would like to just also just give give uh, you know uh, your reaction to it as well as how you were feeling coming up to the the the, the what turned out to be the announcement. Coming up to the day was apprehension. It was a day, I believe. I first found out from from your what are your Twitter accounts because it was a day where he had our first holiday concert back, and I when I do that my phone is off and it was off for like five hours. And I got to my phone and turned it back on. I was like, oh, there's notifications that were like, bam, bam, bam. And it was like apprehension before because, Mike, you know, Sam, you knew, all of our listeners knew that he belonged in and needed to be inducted years ago. It just finally where everybody, we just wanted to make sure that everybody finally made the right choice and pulled the right lever or whatever in the ballot boxes and Justice was finally served for Gil and his and his family. That it was Mike. You know, we've we've talked about it ad nauseum. But as we you know exit 2021, go into 2022, knowing that it's finally going to happen. I mean, at you know, as we said, like it kind of falls in line with 2021. But that, however, just you know amends basically 70 years of of. Of, it, of 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 the Hall of Fame and just the way it all came together going wrong. It, this is up there for me, you know, uh, as a baseball fan and in life, as a person, as a Brooklynite. This is big, and I look forward, you know, to 2022 and the ceremony, and you know, just to hear the collective word being spoken about Gil Hodges. Uh, I can't.
a neon sign in Times Square just, you know, shining over my head nightly until the day finally came and the announcement was made. So I was very happy. Uh, A lot of anxiety. I felt confident and positive that, you know, uh, the correction would finally be made. Uh, And it was. So happy day. Happy day indeed, and it's going to be nice, uh, you know, maybe we can all get together possibly in 2022 and head up there uh, for an arranged, uh, uh, you know, sit, sit on the, the uh, oh, my God, there's going to be a mixture of Dodgers fans and Mets fans. It's, it's just going to be absolutely brilliant. So uh, we, we've touched on Gil Hodges, and, you know, I built this as a general Brooklyn and Dodgers end-of-year podcast, but it's also – our 150th episode, and considering I was this late, 2021, getting to my 150th episode after starting this podcast in 2013, I do think it's fitting that I was tardy to it. Uh, but let's let's go right to you, Rob, as to, as to what is on your mind. Uh, what is on your mind when it comes to whether it be Brooklyn, whether it be Dodgers, whether it be both, all 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 of the above. What is on your mind regarding the franchise that has been around since 1883 well first and foremost sam congratulations on your sesquicentennial of your podcast i don't know if that's right i remember when everything was turning 150 years old it was a sesquicentennial first of all congratulations on that i feel honored to always be asked to to uh, contribute and what is on my radar on my radar you you're very welcome on my radar is always reading i'm always researching and looking for new books and acquiring new books and in, uh, reading these books. Thanks to your uh, recommendation, I just bought and read the Hugh Casey book, which I read. On, uh, we were able to steal away to Mexico for a week, couple weeks ago, and I was able to do that. And what a great story! What a sad, what a, obviously what a sad story it is to the end of that. But what, what very Lyle Spatz wrote an excellent book on that. And anybody looking for that, uh, I actually. I'm in the process of inventorying all my books. This one is called Hugh Casey, The Triumphs and Tragedies of a Brooklyn Dodger. I was able to get it on Amazon for $20, dollars $5. Excellent read. It covers his entire career from coming up with the Cubs, going through, obviously, everybody knows him as a Brooklyn Dodger because he was there for the, the bulk of his career and the tail end of his career. Uh, as a pirate and his tragic early departure from from the earth, but really a, a great book that is highly recommended by me. Yeah, I, I like that you're starting with books because I'm I'm currently actually digitizing one uh, that I sent to Mike, but we'll get to that in a moment. I do want to touch upon that Hugh Casey book, and what's what's so interesting to me um, is that he represents the. Uh, he represents the, the 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 folly of the Brooklyn Dodgers before 1955 in many ways. The especially that the early uh, part, he gets out of the ineptitude of that, uh, or you know, close but no cigar, of that World Series stretch for those Brooklyn Dodgers. It, it encapsulates it with that uh, uh, curveball that got away from Mickey, uh, from Mickey Owen. On top of of being, you know, of the quiet nature, uh, t- touching upon, of course, 
his southern roots and how that that was affected regarding Jackie Robinson uh, coming there. There there was there was something there. Just it, it, it's so interesting getting into the weeds about how they spoke to each other, and, and I don't I, I I I would want to read out of it without uh, I, I'd want to read directly from the book uh, to talk about one particular interaction I remember with Jackie Robinson that I believe you know what I'm talking about, Rob, but it, it, it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's jarring for 2021 to hear oh, yes. the way he oh, was yes. just freely uh, uh, using the N word towards in a joking manner towards Jackie, but mm-hmm. it, mm-hmm. it, it, it's still, it's like when, as I'm painting the picture about how these guys interacted, it, 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 it must've still, you know, even though Jackie apparently in that one particular instance took it in stride, it's just like what black people had to deal with back then. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they were, uh, uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure 99.9% this is the incident. They were playing cards and he was going off and Jackie just stirred at him in his sternly way and just said, deal the cards in a way that we all know how Jackie could say, I cannot give it any sort of justice but the way Jackie would say it, and then it pretty much, you know, put Hugh in his place. He was cool, and, and pretty much that that pretty much stopped it. Right. And and of course, uh, Mike, I'm not sure if you've ever heard of the Ernest Hemingway story about them boxing in Cuba in 1942, but that that is something that's also another reason we got to get you a hold of this book. And one of the, the things that I was unaware of, and I'm not sure if you had ever heard, but Hugh Casey had a restaurant, a bar and restaurant, basically right around the corner on Washington Street. Oh, excuse me, Washington Avenue. Uh, I forget exactly where it is in between. I, I think they did have a, an exact address quite possibly. But, yeah, um, they did. He, he was a fixture. Yeah, he was a fixture of, of the neighborhood he didn't go back to the South like so many players and so many, so many players would go home. He would stay in Brooklyn. Uh, I wasn't aware about the West, the restaurant. Uh, that's pretty neat. Now, do you have any yeah. like, recollections uh, in your, your studies uh, coming across you, Casey and, and, what you remember about any stories that you were told about him from Brooklyn Dodger lore? I think he may be having hey, auditory problems. He, he dropped out earlier, too. Anyway. Uh, well, well, sure enough, we, we will get back to it. So I will tell you, Rob, the book that I – let me just make sure he's still on the line, too. But the book that I okay. uh, have a copy of that was published in 1948, and it very much got – yeah, he, he's going to be calling back in – um, okay. He very much got uh, uh, lost to the, the sands of time, and that was The Dodgers and Me by Leo DeRocher. So this was published in 1950, mm. uh, no, excuse me, 19, 1948, which means that it was basically happened before he got fired in the middle of that year. And um, I'll, I'll, start with, I'll start with you, Mike. I, I sent you something. You know, it, it, one of the great, the coolest things about these phones now is that they had scanning options, and that literally you just hover over the paste, the paper, and it identifies the quote unquote document. So when it, it, what's even more ironic about the book that I, I started sending you, Mike, uh, earlier, is that it was already a photocopy 
uh, uh, modernized for paperback from a, a book that was falling apart <laughs> and then and that the publisher got a hold of and published. And now here I am just trying to get it onto my phone wherever I go. Uh, I have not taken a look at it yet, uh, but I can't wait to jump in. It's just that, uh, as I've been saying, I'm still uh, fouling off these uh, these breaking pitches that life is dealing with me. So I plan to jump in. Uh, I've been admittedly taking a little break over the holidays, but I'll be checking it of out. Of course. The modern... Rob, yeah, go ahead, Mike. No, that's it. Go ahead. Well, Rob, I was going to say about this book that the, the secret about this book is that it's actually ghostwritten by Harold Parrott. Mm, I believe I've, I've come across it. I don't think I've read that one. I read Nice Guys Finished Last. I don't own a copy of it. I think I checked it out from a library somewhere. But uh, I know this word, the, the one you're referring to, is referenced to also as well in the Hugh Casey book several times. And I believe it's because it's, it's neat the way that book is, has all the, has all the, the, the footnotes in the back, and I was con- con- continually searching, looking at the back and see where, where his sources came from, and this source came from there, and, and many sources came from that DeRocher book, and I would like to get a, hand, a, a handle of it someday and get a, get a read of that, because what a character Leo was. Well, hey, I mean, you know, I'm, I guess it's technical piracy, but I'll send it over to you, uh, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm just, I'm just making it a PDF. Thanks, man. Don't tell anybody. Thanks. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm, I'm sure the FBI is clamoring for that book. But, well, you know, one of the yeah. things that I, I like 48. about, uh, uh, exactly. You know, it, and literally, like it says it within the. You can tell that it's printed from an original because it says copyright. Mm. 1948. If it were, if it were, mm-hmm. they, you know, and they they disclaim that this is how they're doing it, so it doesn't even mm-hmm. get a new paperback copyright, which is fascinating right. to me. I, I, right, I don't right, know how that right. kind of stuff works. Mike, what is on your mind? Whether it be Brooklyn, whether it be the old Dodger franchise, you know, I, I guess I we, whenever we have our uh, uh, seasonal podcast, I always ask you what. You know, what are you thinking about re- regarding this season and Brooklyn? So I guess, what are you thinking about? What is on your mind, Brooklyn-wise, as we approach 2022? Change, change. Uh, you know, we're heading, or we're in, we're in our third COVID winter now. Uh, and here in the city, you know, I, I have these conversations with my sister. She's up here from Florida. Uh, helping me take care of my mom, who had recently undergone surgery. But the conversation is, you know, there's roughly 19 million people in Florida, and I guess the difference in sensibilities between down there and up here is here in the metropolitan area, the 50-mile radius, uh, we have over 15 million. You know, within 50 miles of me in all directions, there's 15 million people in my metropolitan area, 8 million and change in the city alone. Uh, And, you know, change. So here in the city, the numbers, uh, they're kind of spiking. And, you know, another way of putting it, putting it, 
is uh, potentially when you go outside, one or excuse me, four and a half people, upwards of eight people out of every hundred might have, you know, succumbed to this virus. Uh, so change. I'm, you know, I'm I'm playing along and complying with everything that they're putting out, you know, to a, to a large degree. But I'm waiting, I'm waiting for change from the very beginning. If history has taught us anything, that it takes us about three years to get over these things. It's happened in the 60s, happened in the 40s, happened in the 20s. So this is really nothing new, although people are breaking out in a rash like it is something new. Uh, but I'm, I'm, you know, patiently trying to wait this out. Uh, it's affected the holidays. Uh, health has uh, affected family situations as well, my own, my mom's. So, you know, change and, you know, the progression of life, that's what I'm coming to grips with. Uh, you know, you're a kid playing stickball in the street one day. Next day, you're mid-career and, and, you know, trying to make your imprint upon this planet and whatever capacity is that you endeavored. Uh, and then you wake up another day and that's behind you and you're waiting to reach that next plateau, you know, whether physically, mentally, spiritually, whatever it is. So I, I'm embracing change. Uh, I'm just trying to be patient and, and and see where 2022 takes us. Uh, well, the, so que- the question change. is, you know, where, when can we move up to the stickball front office? Uh, will you move up to the stickball <laughs> front office? That's, that's what I'm always curious about as well. Um, <laughs> I, I, yeah, and, and so what's, what's so interesting, you know, we're talking about uh, just I, – I, look back at, at the Spanish flu like you talk about, Mike, and that's kind of, you know, uh, uh, speaks and, and helps, uh, uh, in, you know, be context in many ways for the era that I end up uh, looking towards. But, you know, 1937 and 1957, something that I don't know enough history about is the polio epidemic. And, of course, you know, at the time that it, it uh, begotten our president in the middle of war, um, and I guess I'll go to you first, Rob. What, do you have any stories? Did you hear anything? Like, what was going out, going on for your parents regarding polio out in Illinois? Well, I have a distant relative, an in-law of this, this what's called a shirt-tail relative that was inflicted by polio, and he is still... He's still very, very much alive. He's in, the, he's in his 80s. Uh, I see him. I haven't seen him in several years. He has always walked with a limp, and it hit him. And uh, fortunately for me, that's the only one that I know of in any of my extended family or any of my wife's extended family that, that was even ever, ever so slightly inflicted with it. Obviously, through history and everything, we all know that FDR had it, and that's why he was in the wheelchair. And, oh, that movie that came out a couple of years ago about him was fabulous. I can't remember the name, but I could Google it or whatever. But it was, it was, I thought it was a, a really good, what I would assume it would be a, 
a characterization of him and how he dealt with it and how he helped get the vaccines out and how he helped basically curtail it and basically nip it and stop it from becoming, you know, the, the, the giant killer that everybody thought, thought it would be. And it all comes back to vaccines. It all comes back to Pfizer. It all comes back to the Dodgers and the tie-in that many people don't know uh, of Pfizer and Brooklyn. And the, the our John Smith, who died, basically um, died and ended up passing along the Dodgers to... <laughs> To Walter O'Malley, in effect, uh, if you read your history, uh, because he was able to get the wife of John Smith on his side uh, and, and not on Branch Rickey's side, and lo and behold, here we are now. Uh, but what the way he made his uh, his time in Pfizer was by not, not him but particularly inventing penicillin, but Pfizer inventing penicillin and him being at the foreground of inventing penicillin, and I believe that's basically was his uh, uh, resume to become president of Pfizer at the time. Um, Mike, what do you know about the history of Pfizer and John L. Smith in particular? Well, I'll just simply say that that was a very prominent Brooklyn company, Brooklyn-based company. They have a very large compound over in Williamsburg still. Uh, and, you know, obviously we know the ties with the Brooklyn Dodgers uh, and the hierarchy and the ownership and the shares and all, all the drama that was involved with the banks and whatnot. Uh, but, you know, uh, yeah, it, it's it's funny how that works out. Here we are. Uh, Pfizer is one of the pre, uh, uh, three, excuse me, three uh, distributors of the vaccine. Uh, and that's what they do. And Pfizer... Uh, again, it's always been part of the Brooklyn narrative. Uh, it's no stranger to Brooklynites. Employed a lot of people back in the day. You know, they have less of a footprint now uh, than before, uh, but they were a major employer of the borough. In some fashion, you can say that uh, Pfizer left Brooklyn behind just like the Dodgers did. Um, that, <laughs> you might. I, I think that factory... <laughs> The, fa- the factory that you refer to now, I believe, just houses a lot of different small businesses that kind of make mm-hmm. it their both a warehouse, storage, as well as offices. Um, that uh, These types of places, there's one in Long Island City, like all these different uh, uh, facilities that are, are basically housing, you know, up-and-coming craft small businesses in many ways. Um, Rob? What do you know about Pfizer and John L. Smith? You've obviously read a lot of Dodger books, so what do you remember about what you've read about John L. Smith? And anything he was, you know about Pfizer? You know, he, well, I don't know about Pfizer within me. You know, I'm all three. I'm all three by Pfizer, and it's, and it's funny <laughs> that you mentioned that, and I, and I think you may have heard me chuckle and go and basically say, oh, hell yeah. But when you said that, because, um, uh, you know, I've read it, I know Pfizer, and I remember John L. Smith, but, during this whole, you know, getting vaccines, everything, I got Pfizer, I never put one and one together. You know, I'm pretty sure I wore a Dodger hat when I went and got my vaccine. And I should have put it together, and <laughs> shame on me for not. But what I know is, obviously, through the reading, he was always the silent guy. 
you know, what was it, his 30%, whatever his, and his 33%, and his, you know, he was always mentioned as, and just in passing is, oh, I think John L. Smith, the Pfizer company, is also a, 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 an owner of the Dodgers, not majority, but an owner of the Dodgers. And you don't really, all of my readings, you don't really come across that much about him other than, you know, I get the feeling that someone who's working as a president of Pfizer and is also a, a, a part owner of the Dodgers is probably going to be spending a little bit more time on the, on the, on the medical side. So I think that's why yeah, most likely. we haven't heard much about him. And he died, I believe he was 65. Uh, it might have even been a heart attack, but he might have just had heart disease. I'd have to look it up real quick. Um, yeah. I'm sure it's on Wikipedia uh, fast. But, um, yeah, you know, Mike, it's it, – it, it, one of the things when I'm going through, like I've been reading a lot about the Charles Evans building Evans field era, and they talk about the only thing, you know, you're talking about change, the only big building that just towered over every, everything else back then in Pigtown was the consumer parks brewery. Um, and it, 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 it was basically just, you know, wooden shacks around there. And it wasn't until 1920 uh, at least on Sullivan's place, I read uh, that row houses started being built. So uh, the last time that there was a flu around that time, eight, nine, you know, 1918 to 1921, like you said, three years, uh, there was a lot of change. The war had just ended. They they were de- developing Brooklyn immensely. Uh, the Dodgers were in a pennant in 1920, uh, but baseball was also dealing with cynicism because it, they were rocked by a, a, a gambling scam. Yeah, big ball had, uh, baseball had a big comeback to make. Uh, you know, the trial and the outcome of the trial didn't take place till later in the 20, uh, excuse me, 1920 season. So everybody went about their business just waiting and waiting and waiting, and then finally news broke out. Uh, well, first the rumors and then the actual court case. But, uh, yeah, baseball had a big problem on their hands, and uh, everybody knew it. Players knew it. Fans knew it. Owners knew it. Umpires knew it. Gambling had been rampant in baseball for, you know, well over 50 years at that point. Uh, baseball... Uh, is as fundamental, excuse me, gambling is as fundamental to baseball as green grass and dirt. Uh, it's been there since day one. Uh, so it's, it's, and as you say, the, the area, you know, on Franklin, Franklin Avenue, over by Montgomery, in between Montgomery and, uh, and McKeever, no, Montgomery and Sullivan, excuse me. Uh, right now it's a spice, Old Spice Warehouse, uh, but there's a big building on Franklin that's uh, opposite Ebbets Field Departments, uh, and they're separated by Jackie Robinson Playground. Uh, that building was there forever in a day, side by side with Ebbets Field, and I think it's living out its last days now. What happens? What happens everywhere? You know, uh, real estate changes hands, and I think they're going to be knocking it down. It's a beautiful old building. 
goes back to the era. I think it, uh, it was there when they built Ebbets Field originally. Uh, so I'm, I'm sorry to see this one particular building go. Still there, but I know it's in its, in its last days, and I talked to the owner over there. Uh, he's he's a, uh, a spice trader, importer, exporter, and you could smell that building at least two blocks away. Uh, uh, the, 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 this aroma coming out of there is very strong. Uh, and depending on what they're, yeah, you know, bringing in or moving out, you know, it, it can vary. But uh, yeah, very, yeah. Very, I, I know what you're. What's beautiful about that building too, Mike, is the fact that if you look very closely, you see old weather torn uh, lettering that says the Consumer Parks Brewery. Right. Right. So I'll I'll, I'll be sorry to see that place go. Yeah, I have to check it out one more time before they they do get rid of it. Uh, Rob, you know, just anything you want to touch upon from what you just heard. Well, first of all, two things that what. You mentioned about the buildings. First was the Pfizer building. You said the Fi- some of the Pfizer building is still still there being used as a multi-purpose, multi-function. I, I think that is cool. I love that. There's been a lot of that done here in the Midwest as well, and I think it's wonderful. I love old architecture. I love old buildings like that. And secondly, what you mentioned about this, what, what Mike, you mentioned about the spices, immediately brought me back to in my first job out of college was selling packaging supplies, and one of my customers in uh, – Maywood, which is which is uh, near suburb of Chicago, was a spice distributor, and you could like you said, you could smell that place for uh, I thought it was multiple blocks away, etc. And used to see that place, and then I changed careers, and I didn't I didn't uh, I didn't do that anymore, and I was moved into more into music and working for uh, the family business here with my wife, and all of a sudden driving along one of the major roads out here, all of a sudden I got that smell again. And they had relocated out near me about about a mile, about three blocks off of this main road, and I still catch that whiff constantly driving this main road that I that I travel a lot. So I thought that was a neat, neat little comeback there, Mike. Thank you again. <laughs> no problem. I mean, you know, Mike, it's pretty fascinating that you do go – go uh, by that place and then there's that lot on the uh the southern uh, section right that's completely like like mostly grass i believe and has some graffiti in it um but what's brilliant about first of all i wonder if george costanza works there you know importer exporter hey uh but it, i think it's fascinating that that it's still basically to this day you know in 1800 i believe it's from the 1800s as a brewery, and until, like you say, change is coming, um, it, it's been more or less a factory of some sort. That that open lot next to the factory, that open lot and the buildings on the on the corner of Franklin and Sullivan, uh, again, are contemporary with Ebbets Field. That lot has always been an open lot. I don't know if that was a court for the buildings themselves and the residents, but when you look at pictures, aerial photos of Ebbets Field, that lot is there and it's empty just the way it is now. Mm. So that factory, that big open lot, 
and the apartment buildings on the corner, the residential buildings uh, on Sullivan and on Washington still remain. So, you know, that's a and, – and the building across the street from Sullivan Place, from Ebbetsfield, from Jackie Robinson and the public school, um, that building remains as well. So, you know, immediately those buildings surrounding the apartments or Ebbetsfield and Jackie Robinson Playground, you know, they're contemporary to today. So, you know, uh, I never let it slip. I never let it slip me when I when I drive by or go by for whatever reasons. And, you know, uh, I always catch myself looking around and pondering the what if, the what if of me growing up in that era. Uh, but those bu- those buildings are great little reminders and markers, and I, I just hope they stand or continue to stand the test of time. Now, considering that I, I had to kind of rush into the opening, and I, I think I might have had just an impromptu opening, uh, let me just reset it by saying you are listening to the Bedford and Sullivan podcast, the uh, podcast that keeps you, the audience, active uh, listeners in the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series research process. And if I ever get lucky enough to have the money to – film this thing or put it together in any way, shape, or form, uh, you know, I think first we're going to be able to do it in an easier fashion, which is, is uh, drawn, hopefully. But if it's ever to be a, a series, I, I always wonder, because you're not going to be able to necessarily film in that neighborhood, Mike, but I, I do wonder how I can still incorporate. I mean, because, you, like, you know, the row houses that we're talking about, if you're filming for 1938, you can probably manipulate it and, and, and digitize the background, but still actually maybe be able to film on location there. Uh, there's some, you know, uh, there's some spots you can film, or you could do what the rest of Hollywood does and go to Toronto. <laughs> of course, I say that in jest. <laughs> or but... Atlanta. Atlanta, Vancouver. <laughs> But uh, you know, if you have if you have focus shots and not big, you know, widescreen, uh, you could probably pull it off. Uh, there's little spots that you could pull that off. Uh, Rob, you know, like that's what we're we're here for when it all comes down to it. That's what I'm here for. Uh, I'm here on a cinematic level in in many ways, but I, I always forget. You know, you've probably said it multiple multiple times you've how many times if at all have you been over to bedford and sullivan to the apartments i cannot take myself to get there to go there i think i've told you this yes i've been to brooklyn i think six times now maybe or as early as 1988 spent a weekend there with a guy with uh with my bride i'm my my bride uh visiting a friend who was in our wedding up until most recent was, I believe, 2014, when I went to the to the Brooklyn Historical Society when they had the Dodgers exhibit was my last time there. I could, like I say, I cannot get myself to go there. I've seen Mike's excellent videos that you have posted about going there, and you walked around the apartments. And next time I am there, I will go. Maybe I can meet the, both of you guys there, and you can help me from sobbing as I walk up to it, but I need to go. 
We we may so, have bumped into uh, each is, other at, at the Brooklyn Historical Society. Yeah. Awesome. I was Fabulous. there on a Tuesday in April, uh, like April 5th. I, I could show it up on my phone. It was 2011. I went there by myself. It was 2011. Okay. And don't tell. 11. Okay. Don't. Don't tell anybody else, but I took photos of the entire thing, then went upstairs, took a photo, and somebody's like, hey, you can't do that. I'm like, oh, okay. I took photos? I got what I need. What? Yeah, I did the same thing. Uh, if it was there, I <laughs> yeah. photographed it, and I was told a couple of times, no, no pictures alive. I was like, oh, okay, sorry. Oh, wow. Click, click, click. I was never told anything, and I got photos of the whole place. And I was there in March, and it was colder than... I was I had a I had a leather yeah. jacket on and I was freezing taking the subway over and walking to Manhattan and that was cold. That's funny that we didn't overlap, but that you know you were there yeah. in March yeah. 2011 was it? It was 2011. Yeah, right? it was yeah. The same. yeah. And you know, don't tell anybody, but I got a a photo that like with I, I got a photo of of. Uh, every single correspondence Walter had about a stadium. Mm. And, mm-hmm. and you can now, like, I can literally, I can literally, like, because I took it as, you know, much of, uh, overhead as possible, but some of it's angled. But because of the modern technology, you can make it look like you just printed it out. <laughs> yep. 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 It's crazy. And I've started yeah. to adjust it that way. And, and, uh, Nobody. I, I was there on a Tuesday in April. There was nobody else in the building. I was there like at like 11 a.m. or something like that. Maybe even 2 p.m. or so. You know, something that nobody would be. Nobody else would probably be there. And I it, was it there. Was just, like, and I'm then when I, one I, of my photos. I, Sorry, go ahead. Finish up. No, no. I was just snapping a photo of a map of Brooklyn upstairs, like nice. a map of Brooklyn from the 1800s, I believe, and that's when they were like, you can't do that. And I was just like, good? <laughs> <laughs> I was there on Sunday, March 27th at 12.48 p.m. is what one of the time oh, wow. on one of these photos. <laughs> Gotta love it. We can do that now. So, I know. And, and, I, and, and yeah. that neighborhood... That neighborhood where the Brooklyn Historical Society is, Brooklyn Heights, that's effectively America's first suburb. Mm. Yes. And speaking of that building, I'm fairly certain, based off of of everything I read about the Brooklyn Club, that building was indeed the Brooklyn Club building before it became the Historical Society. That's cool. And that's and then, where you know what the pic- Walter O'Malley toasted to Charlie Evans' uh, birthday in 1939. Mm. And the last photos I took on my little on my little swing through, I went over to Atlantic and Flat Flatbush, and I have photos of the Barclays Center being built. Oh wow! And I'm like, wow, could have been, would have, could have, should have. Yeah. Well, you know, what, what's insult to injury is right across the street is uh, the Ebbets Field-ish ballpark-looking mall that is actually, I yeah. think, actually where Walter O'Malley the location, was, which yeah. is literally right on top of, of uh, the, the train station. Whereas That's uh, where I took the train over to, right? Mm-hmm. 
I, I'm pretty sure that's yep. actually where he officially wanted. That's where the meat market was, the Fort Green meat market. Okay. Yeah, Fort Green. Mike, exactly. go ahead. Yep. Oh, I photo-documented Barclay, the building of Barclays Center from uh, groundbreaking. I was there for the ceremony all the way to opening day. So mm-hmm. I have pictures of, uh, let's say, every week of the entire construction period. I was going down there all the time, all the time. So I have well over, I don't know, 400, 500 pictures of them uh, building Barclays Center. I mean, every beam, every section, the pit, you name it, I got it. (laughs) I made it my business. Uh, I, I was fortunate enough to be working in the air for all that time. So it made it rather convenient, but uh, yeah. So I, I I like to believe that I captured some history, and I have over 400, 500 photos of every bit of construction. <clears throat> and I was there for ribbon every bit uh, too. for the ribbon cut ribbon cutting ceremony as well. They didn't know it, but I was there. <laughs> they didn't know it. <laughs> now, question. <laughs> Isn't there the firehouse that has one of the Abbott's Field foul poles right in that intersection, too? Well, the foul pole, one of the foul poles has been brought to yeah. Barclays Center and now sits at the corner okay. in the intersection of Atlantic and Flatbush. Oh. Uh, so when, the so foul give me, pole give me, uh, of lore, the year myth, that it was legend. Built. Say again, Sam? The Barclays Center. Give me, give me the year that the Barclays Center was built. Uh, grand opening 2012, so from uh, 2010, 11, and 12 was construction. All right, I'm going to see if I can find my sunset construction photo, but go ahead, Mike. Uh, where was I? I forgot. About the foul pole? Oh, the flagpole. <laughs> right. Uh, they made a dedication. They, they put the flagpole uh, in front of Barclays Center. Now, the myth, lore, and legend of that particular foul pole goes back to Utica Avenue in Brooklyn. Uh, there used to be a batting cage, an indoor batting cage on Utica Avenue off of Glenwood Road uh, that, as a little leaguer, our coach used to bring us there uh, at night for batting practice. And we would always run up the block because we knew that the Ebbetsfield flagpole was in an alleyway where uh, – the establishment itself started out as one thing, but it changed ownership and it became a pastor's church. Uh, and there was a pl- there was a plaque there. This is the flagpole of its field. Uh, so what happened? Uh, the church was on. You know they were struggling financially, uh, and he wanted a a hefty sum for that flagpole, and somebody met his price. Uh, I remember long ago, uh, it re-entered my mind. I said, you know what? i got to go there and get a picture of that thing before something happens to it. When I showed up that day, sure enough, I was two weeks late. Uh, next door was a, uh, a window uh, uh, awning construction business and I asked one of the employees there what happened to the flagpole and they're like 
two weeks ago, a flatbed, a flatbed truck came and took it away, and we haven't seen it since, and nobody knew about it. And for years, nobody knew who bought it. Nobody knew where it was. It just disappeared off the face of the earth for a little bit until the ceremony at Barclays Center. So it was, in fact, the Brooklyn Nets who purchased it, and I do believe they paid a hefty sum for that flagpole. And uh, they had the ceremony. And it was there that I met uh, Sharon Robinson. Uh, and that's one of my the highlights of my life, much less being a sportsman. To meet Jackie Robinson's daughter, I was truly honored. Uh, and we spoke and we conversed. How do you like that? I, I was truly honored. So, you know, that's I got to see the old flagpole again that I remember from being a kid in Little League and it came back. It came back to Brooklyn. That was a happy day. That's beautiful. That's uh, yeah. And you know, I'm I'm finding my own Barclays Center photos right now. That I'm not sure if you guys are catching them, but I'll have to post them uh, tomorrow. Connected to a thread uh, regarding this. Um, and I wanted to go to Walter O'Malley. I think this is you know this whole intersection is quite a good segue. Um, I've been reading, and this is where you can uh, uh, help me out, Rob. Um, I, I've been reading uh, Andy McHugh's book, I think it, it is, which is Mover and Shaker. And Mover and Shaker. It's, it's unbelievable about that book is that you don't even get to 50% of it before you, you get to Los Angeles. And so, like, the stuff that I'm mostly focused on is is the Brooklyn stuff. And right now I'm kind of moseying on through the L.A. stuff, and I think I just got to Dodger Stadium, um, mm-hmm. if that. I might still be in 1961. Um, but it, it it is fascinating, you know, that they talk about Walter Mowling knowing the whole time, planning the whole time. But it looks like just based off of that one book, who, I, I you know, I think was a pretty objective – angle didn't really take one side or the other uh just viewed it from what happened and how it happened and it it seemed like things were so shaky in los angeles that walter was really just you know like playing by the seeds of his pants the entire time all right i think about it yes the risk I've, i've mentioned this before countless times the risk that he had to take to take this established national brand, I know it's a terrible thing to say, but really it is. Take it, uproot it, move it, what, 2,500, 3,000 miles west to an, uh, they first, he first bought the, you know, the, the LA Angels minor league. He was going to put it in Wrigley Field at like 25,000 people. To take that and have that without any guarantee he, I really, honestly, with all of my heart, believe that he wanted to stay in Abbott's, excuse me, in Brooklyn as long as he can, as long as possible. He wanted to be at Atlantic and Flatbush. He wanted his dome there. He was a native New Yorker. And the fact that he had to have a contingency plan that he, that he really, really just threw together at the 11th hour really tells me that he was so torn at that decision. He really was. And 
that and the book that you mentioned, Mover and Shaker, is a wonderful one. I highly recommend it. And that and go to WalterO'Malley.com. His website is just has everything. Like you're talking about taking pictures of all the uh, all the letters at the historical society. Society, it's all there. Everything, everything about his first uh, mentioned in I believe 19. 19- 45 or maybe 48 about having Ebbets Field replaced and 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 because it's out of date, there's no parking. We all know the story. So I really, really think and believe with all my heart that he wanted to stay as, as until the 11th hour. You know, it really does seem like an 11th hour pitch, and it just so happened that he also knew, Mike, um, he could own – Los Angeles. He he would be a hero there. Whereas here, he's still, regardless of just Brooklyn, the fourth largest city in the country, you know, if it's still a city, uh, it's still just a borough here because they took yeah, well. Brooklyn's independence away. And you had to deal with the Giants who, you know, had to go with them and was were having – uh, we're, we're in much dire straits, more dire straits uh, uh, than the Dodgers, who weren't at all. And uh, you had to compete with the Yankees, who owned baseball. Well, look, at the end of the day, L.A. made him an offer he couldn't refuse. It was just too good. Uh, sure, you can argue that Rockefeller offered to help him finance purchase of the real estate here in Brooklyn. Uh, But, again, the deal with L.A. was too good to pass up. That's really the gist. Uh, What alternatives did he have here in Brooklyn? You know, that's debatable. We know what he wanted. And we know who was front and center opposing him, Mr. Robert Moses. He played a part. Uh, it's debate how big a role he played because the ultimate decision came from Mr. O'Malley. And like I said, I threw Rockefeller in there. He, he, he offered help to keep them here. But at the end of the day, that deal with L.A. was just too good to pass up. And he had fortune on his side that Mr. Stoneham was already you know, looking to leave. Uh, he had no choice. Like you say, he was in more dire straits than the Dodgers were. But, you know, uh, Mr. O'Malley, that was great fortune that he was able to go to California with a companion club, you know, uh, to make it feasible business-wise for the rest of the league to go to California and, and you know, put forth these road trips close to the Mississippi. Uh, who else might have gone to San Francisco in lieu of the Giants, now that's also up for debate. Uh, we know the St. Louis Browns originally had the idea of going to Los Angeles first, before the Dodgers. But then the war came and squashed all of that. And then uh, it resurfaced again. That deal was just incredible. It was too incredible to pass up. And, you know, look how it turned out. He was right. He was right. And I, now, I, well, one more, one last thing. You know, 
you also yeah. have to keep this in a New York City context. New York City's constantly spilling over, spilling over, spilling over, constantly. One in seven people in this country can trace their families back through Brooklyn. That's a hell of a fingerprint. You know, when you consider Maine to Key West and L.A. to Seattle and all the crosshairs in between, one in seven people can trace their families back to Brooklyn. So New York City's constantly spilling over. And that's our history. And, you know, the Brooklyn Dodgers got wrapped up in that. And they, like many, many other people, families, businesses, or whatnot, they move. They start here and they move. So that's, you know, uh, very common to the New York City historical narrative. Yeah, that, you know, it's, it's, it's funny because it's always the debate of what makes a New Yorker. Do you have to be born here? Uh, do you have to have moved here when you were a kid? Do you have to just have been here for six months to a year? What is it about the New Yorker? Because a lot of New Yorkers are transplants, and then they leave again. Uh, and it is it's fascinating uh, circle that you talk about. And, you know, Rob, it, when it comes to that deal, however, you know, one of the things that you, you read as you go through what uh, basically L.A. almost sold uh, uh, Walter O'Malley a bill of goods, and he was almost in a, play, a position to have to go back to even New York. And as, as much as Mike talks about the deal being too good to be true, it turned out to be that way because otherwise L.A. would have had eggs on, eggs on their faces. Very, very, very true. I, there's a video that I've seen. I have several, several cuts of it, but one of, the, one of the first thing that happens when Walter lands in Los Angeles on the, on the Dodger plane with and Ro, Rosalind Wyman, the city councilwoman, who pushed – Hard, 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 hard to get the Dodgers here because also you were mentioning Sam about the, I mean uh, Mike about the about the St. Louis Browns. The Washington Center Senators were also rumored to to have gone out there post World War II, but that fell apart. But one of the first things that happens to Walter is he, as he as he disembarks the Dodger plane is he gets served the summons and he has to appear in court about about Chavez Ravine about everything and. So much has been written about Chavez Ravine. There are multiple different stories about the about the uh, the Mexican Americans that were living there that were pushed off the land. And I'm actually in the middle of another book about it called Stealing Home by Eric Nussbaum that goes into it in detail. I've just started that. That was a, a present for my family for Christmas. So, but what Dodger Stadium was originally supposed to open up in 1960. It didn't open up until 1962. They had to play four years in the Coliseum where it was only originally supposed to be two. Yes, it was wonderful. It sat 90,000 people, but, you know, on some nights they were still only drawing 13 on a weeknight or whatever. But still, it was – there were so many – so much politics there. The whole eminent domain thing is that – that that failed that, that that Walter wanted Robert Moses to do in Brooklyn 
where he says it didn't work, all of a sudden it worked in L.A. So roll his dice, take his dice. Yes, and like you said, Sam, there were rumors of after 58 of, of putting his tail between his legs and moving back. And what would have happened to that? I don't know. I'm sure. I'm sure the New Yorker. I'm sure the Brooklynites would have brought him back and said, "Ha ha! You too bad. You, you too bad. You messed up. But we'll take you back." Obviously, we will never know that. <laughs> the biggest problem so I would imagine. <laughs> the biggest problem I would imagine for residents of Brooklyn would have been the impotence of the mayor versus Robert Moses. That this man had, uh, he was uh, the power of an emperor from Rome over the mayor. And I I would imagine me living in that time period thinking how ponderous that can be insofar as the power structure. So, Mike, imagine Dodger Stadium with a facade as a pristine example of architecture in the 1960s at the corner of Atlantic and Flatbush for the new city of Brooklyn. Well, we, you saw the plans. I saw the plans. Rob, you saw the plans. Mm-hmm. What Mr. O'Malley wanted to do is Take away the dome. It gets done easier. Take, take away the dome. It gets done easier. Just, yeah, just but Dodger it, Stadium you know, it, with with a facade, without the dome. It, it was still a very uh, future-reaching endeavor that he he sought, dome or no dome. Uh, that would have been incredible. Uh, you and know, you know what? That what ended incredible. up happening was that Shea Stadium opens up at the same time as the World's Fair. Walter O'Malley could have had enough patience in some fashion, considering the lease uh, of, of Ebbets Field. that didn't have to be sold, but he was obviously trying to force the, the uh, thing. Um, he could have waited a little bit uh, of time and probably had something going had he just been committed to New York as opposed to committed, you know, in his brain, Really, it becomes not just him one within himself, but what is best for the team. And it's well, obvious I, that he thought of it in a modern corporate sense a little bit more than we would like him to have. To have. I, I also think we underestimate the call of California. They were ready. Uh, you go back to the Pacific Coast League, they were very successful. And they considered themselves major league. And they were on the precipice of declaring themselves a major league. Even before then, back go to the 1920s, you know, baseball thumbprint was there. The Los Angeles White Sox, a, a, a winter Negro League aggregation. Uh, so baseball was there for everybody, you know, not just the Caucasians of, of, of California, Southern California and Los Angeles. But there was a wide-ranging fan base, and perhaps – uh, you know, maybe I speak from an East Coast bias, but I, I think a lot of times we underestimate the call of California, that, you know, uh, that intangible call, and go west, young man, and that's what he did. And again, 
he had the Yankees to compete with, whereas in Los Angeles he could be the Yankees of the West. Uh, I do think there is something to that. I don't know whether, you know, I still have a lot of material to go through. I mean, there's really never-ending when it comes to this. This At some point you just have to pick an angle <laughs> and go with it. But, Rob, you know, that is is something I wonder about, whether he did think about especially after all those World Series losses, you know, just, and, you know, they, he, they got their, their uh, th- them as a franchise did get over the hump and beat the Yankees a few times after that. They sure did. And, and you mentioned, uh, Mike, about, you know, East Coast bias and uh, the lure of the West Coast. Living in a flyover state here, you know, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, I can see, I can definitely see that point about about the lure of the West Coast. I mean, that that weather is come on. <laughs> who wouldn't who wouldn't want to live when it's like seventy five and between seventy five and eighty three, like for like three hundred days of the year? I, I I most certainly would. And yes, and the Yankees, and I like your point too, Sam, about about having to compete with the Yankees. Yes, yes, they fought them, and how you know. 41, 47, 49, 52, 53, 55, 56. That's seven times those two teams met. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden they, they, they move. You know, finally they win it and then they're gone. And then they, 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 and then they sweep them in 63, which is with that incredible pitching staff that they had. So, but it's, it's, you know, it, it's one of these stories that we'll, we'll we, you and I, uh, the three of us, will always talk about, and everybody else in this same uh, boat that we're all in, we'll all talk about this. We always talk about our what ifs. What if this happens? What if Moses is a, a, a baseball fan? The things I've read is Moses was not a baseball fan. He's like, ah, baseball, whatever. That's why he wanted, didn't want to do it. It's why he wanted to put him in, in, in uh and uh, at, uh, at, at where Shea Stadium was in in, in, uh, in Queens. So uh, we, there's a lot of what ifs here, gentlemen. There are a lot of what ifs, and it is remarkable that it goes all the way back to Charlie Ebbets and the way the Ebbets-McKeever factor unfolded. Uh, just something went awry to not keep this in Brooklyn, Mike. Oh, you know, I continue to keep this in the New York City perspective. Look at all the changes that the New York Giants undertook before settling at the final polo grounds. You know, that wasn't the original side of the polo grounds. Uh, They were just like everyone else. And, you know, the Brooklyn Dodgers, the Dodgers had their little niche of the city, you know, uh, the Yankees, look at their genesis. Just a few miles away from the polo grounds at Hilltop Park, and then they move into the polo grounds. Uh, and John McGraw tried evicting them, and the league you know, didn't allow it, uh, but they tried. So push came to shove, and what did Colonel Rupert do? He bought property right across the river from the polo yeah. grounds and built the first tri-level stadium. You see, so it's an evolution. And what happens here in New York, we know about the genesis of baseball, place in Manhattan and Brooklyn. You know, unfortunately, 
when you're the first, you ultimately fall first. It's a lifespan, and it's an evolution. So, you know, you can point a lot of fingers to New York City and say this started here, that started here, this started here, that started here. Look how long ago all that started, you know, but the Yankees were in a unique situation. They were forced to leave because their landlord was hostile towards them, and they moved right across the river. The Dodgers didn't have that luxury. Uh, and Colonel Lupin did what he did. He had money, and he built that first trial-level stadium, the first place we called a stadium. Uh, but the Dodgers didn't have that luxury. Uh, but we speak of the Yankees, they, they faced the same fate with the first Yankee stadium. You know, it, it started falling apart, and then they renovated it in 74 and 75 and reopened it in 76. And that lasted for another couple of decades. But ultimately, it had to come down. And and look at the shenanigans that went on uh, with George Steinbrenner threatening to move them to New Jersey if he didn't get his way here in the city. Again, he represented New York, whereas the Dodgers represented Brooklyn. You know, uh, something that Mr. O'Malley made at a point, uh, a point of discussion with Mr. Moses. But... It's an evolution. It's, it's a lot of it. Uh, sometimes the timing is good. Sometimes the timing is bad. And, and that's New York City. And you know when you still, when you're the Giants and the Dodgers, and you know you're you're growing with a burgeoning city. That's one thing. But like everything else, there's a lifespan to it, and there's very few teams that are still in their original spots. Look what happened to the Braves. You know, look what happened to the A's. Look what happened to the Browns. You know? Uh, look. What, so I, I, I see it in a, in a New York City perspective of that constant spillover. And, you know, whereas this might have been the start, and, and where baseball grew up and became an adolescent and even middle age, as time goes on, the generations spread out. And that's what happened. The Yankees were in a unique situation, and they were able to build a brand-new ballpark right across the street, over by 161st and River Avenue. So, you know, they were afforded that luxury by a friendly city government. Uh, a motivated city government. Mr. O'Malley did not have that. Both New York City baseball teams, the Mets and the Yankees, benefited from a motivated city government to get these new parks done. Uh, Mr. O'Malley did not have that luxury. And in fact, you know, I, I will again point to the impotence of the mayor of New York City at the time insofar as the power structure versus Robert Moses. Uh, I find that somewhat ponderous, and uh, I don't think it would have sat well with me had I been living at that time. You know, so the timing, city government, you know, <laughs> it, it's all weird, man, but that's the way it worked out. 
You know, once upon a time, the Chrysler Building was the tallest building in the world. And then what happened? A couple of years later, <laughs> you know, so New York City as a whole does a horrible job of of embracing and and protecting and promoting its history. It's forever moving forward. And I think people have to understand that reluctantly, even as a New Yorker and a Brooklynite, uh, that sentiment isn't easy to swallow. But it's forever moving forward. Past The past is not necessarily its priority. So uh, before we go, Rob, let me angle it this way. Uh, the Dodgers in Chicago. Uh, Chicago is, certainly has its own uh, set of, of similar uh, uh, narratives to Brooklyn, to New York, uh, that obviously, you know, get lost uh, on our side of things. So it, it, tie it all together if you could. Uh, from Dodgers, Chicago, and and everything we've talked about. Chicago, Chicago has gone through its own growing pains with with stadium replacements, and just like Ebbets Field was was outgrown, Comis- the original Comiskey Park was outgrown. It was a little, it's, it's older. It, it was older. It was built in 1910. Great stadium. As a National League fan, I own, I didn't go. As often as I would have, as I should have, only maybe, uh, I was probably in the original Comiskey Park maybe 10, 15 times as to Wrigley Field by the time it went, went away. I'd been there to Wrigley Field probably 60, 70 times, but great stadium, great atmosphere, great everything. And when it came time to replace Comiskey Park, you know, People were getting pulled. They were going to go. They were. They were going to be the original. The White Sox were going to be the original in, uh, inhabitants of the the Suncoast Dome, where the where the Rays are. They were going to go to Tampa. They were going to go to San. They were going to, no. The Giants were going to go to go to Tampa too. But they were going to go to Denver. They were going to go all over the place. And then at the eleventh hour, I still remember hearing this. The Illinois Legislature. They had a deadline of of uh, I think it was May thirty first. 1988, it was the year I was married again, yes, May 31st of 1988, they had uh, a deadline at midnight, and the legislature had to pass the bill for the funding of it, and I still remember driving home from an event with my bride, and here we're listening to them live that they they passed it. So, to tie it back into what happened in in Brooklyn and New York, and, and, and your neighborhoods, it all has to be, you have to have... Everybody has to communicate. Everybody has to work together. Yes, the teams are owned by, by entities. By Now they're owned by corporations, but back then they're owned by individuals who, let's phrase, face it, they're businessmen. We all want to be romantics. We all are romantics because this is why we're spending an hour and a half on a, on a Monday night in December talking about this because we love the sport. We love the game. We're romantics. But it's a business, and the fact that you need cooperation from the business owner and the local governments to make these things happen, fortunately it happened in Chicago, and we still have the Chicago White Sox. Unfortunately, it didn't happen in New York and Brooklyn, and the Brooklyn Dodgers are now the Los Angeles Dodgers. 
Mike, once upon a time in 1902, at the end of 1902, uh, the Baltimore Orioles, who had lost a lot of their players to the Brooklyn Dodgers, who ended up winning pennants in, eight, in 18, uh, I believe it was 1898 and 1899, as opposed to 1899 and 1900, maybe I'm wrong, but um, they were they moved uh, to New York uh, and became the first American League for New York, the New York Americans. Um, and Ned Hanlon, who was managing the Brooklyn Dodgers at the time, uh, the Brooklyn Superbas, because of uh, his name tie-in to a circus guy, um, wanted to buy out uh, one of the, uh, the owners because they were sick and they were looking to, to sell, and he was going to move Brooklyn out of uh, – he was going to move the Dodgers out of Brooklyn – and move them down to Baltimore, uh, who needed an American League team. Char, uh, Char- Charlie Ebbett, excuse me, went to Henry Medicus, uh, one of his friends, and I forget what business he was in, and he helped him uh, get the money together to uh, outbid Ned Hanlon and buy the team, but get a bigger portion of the team from uh, the then ailing owner. Um, and so he could keep the Dodgers in Brooklyn. Isn't it funny the way it all ties together? Thank goodness for Charlie Evitz, Charles Hercules Evitz, considering how he started with the organization and, you know, ascended to the top. Uh, and as you say, kept him here, kept him afloat, kept him in the public eye and kept them uh, a prominent institution. Uh, that could have gone away very quickly. Uh, so, you know, I'm thankful for Mr. Abbott's and uh, any chance I get, I go to here to Greenwood and put a little rock on top of his stone. So, uh, yeah. But you mentioned the Baltimore Orioles. And you see how that whips around. You know, that was John McGraw's former team. And then he comes to New York and uh, becomes associated with the New York Giants. And lo and behold, you know, the team that was uh, put into a state of defunctness, the Orioles, you know, uh, now the Yankees or the Highlanders come into play and they wind up in... John McGraw's home, and he loads them because of what baseball did to his Baltimore Orioles of days past. So it, it's it's great how that cycles around. And hey, there's there's baseball history for you. And let me let me just say, Rob, that when you look at all those those young photos of John McGraw in his playing days with the Baltimore Orioles, and then you see the maturation over the course of his 30-year history with the Giants, I mean, they must have just been eating steak and potatoes with butter every night. <laughs> yeah, well, you mentioned that, not and. A lot of those guys, you look at the pictures of you say that, and they're, and they're like 37, 38, 90, and they look like they're 70, like a 70-year-old looks now. <laughs> and I'll bring it back to what we started with talking about, the Hugh Casey book. Hugh Casey was always 
ridiculed and oppressed for being rotund, any adjective they could use. And you talked about once he opened his restaurant and how he stayed up north and didn't go south. And he worked in his restaurant, and he spent a lot of times glad-handing and eating, and it only added to his girth, and it only added to his looking like he was, like, once again, about 30 years older than he really was back in the day. Yeah, it's, part of it was probably the photography technology back then as well, but it's all kind of funny how it all, how it all turns out, turned out that way. Yeah, Mike, I just think of that photo of John McGraw, at, like, you know, closing in on the end of his career, sitting at the top of, of a dugout steps, and, and he just, like, it's just those New York nights, man. The games are during the day. The, the man was a, what I call a baseball surgeon. He dissected the game of baseball like a surgeon. And that's why uh, he didn't take too kindly to Babe Ruth, you know. Uh, He always said that players work too hard to have this guy, uh, you know, mock them with one swing of the bat. (laughs) So, you know, uh, that was a transitory period in baseball uh, from the dead ball era to the long ball. So I I think that's kind of comical as well. It certainly is. You have been listening to the Bedford and Sullivan podcast, and we hope that you are all well out there uh, this holiday season. As we uh, close in on 2022, um, we're going to round out uh, to our last word. Uh, thank you, gentlemen, once more. And I, I guess I, before we get to our last words, I really I can't do an episode uh, without a shameless plug. So first, we'll start with you, Michael Colon, the Brooklyn Trolley blogger himself. Uh, just that, the Brooklyn Trolley Blogger, come give me a visit. I'm going to be sparking up my activity again here pretty soon. The Winter League playoffs are about to start. So, uh, you know, I always like to cover that. And, you know, give me a visit. Uh, majority of what I do is baseball, but, you know, I'm a seasonal guy, and I, I root for all my teams, and that's where I do it. And uh, I highlight my life in Brooklyn. cover a lot of graffiti and things going around the borough, uh, and that's it. That's it. Just give it a give it a visit. Brooklyn Trolley Blogger. I'm not a big plugger. You know that. <laughs> Excellent, Mike. Thank you so much. And Alini Dodger himself, Rob Barnes, go ahead. Tell everybody where they can find you. First of all, it's Alini, I-L-L-I-N-I. So that's how it's pronounced. That's okay. Um, what I'm doing is I am actually going into training mode myself because for the holiday, this holiday season, I gifted myself a week playing Dodger baseball at Glendale, Arizona at their new location. So three weeks from right now, I will be in the sun playing baseball. Sadly, no Brooklyn guys are attending these camps anymore, obviously, but it will be a week in the sun. I'm really looking forward to it. The biggest thing is I hope is my legs hold out because it's running a lot and I'm almost 60 years old and my legs are the big thing that really get to me after playing multiple games of baseball for a while. But I've been in training and I'm really looking forward to it. And I will check in with you guys when I'm out there. 
Oh, great. Well, that's going to be a lot of fun. We look forward to seeing some photos as well, Rob. Thank you. And, and we're going to start with you for uh, your final word. Okay. Once again, every time I'm on, I am humbled. I am, I am beyond humbled. I am beyond honored to help you in any way, shape, or form that I can, Sam. I really applaud you for what you've done. I really I love seeing the progress. I love re- I'm reading what you've done. And I look for the day when it's a, a finished product that we can that you can be very proud of, and I know it will be good. Once again, thank you again, gentlemen. Happy New Year, Happy Holidays. It's been uh, it's been a lovely night way to spend my evening because I was up at four o'clock this morning driving my wife and daughter to the airport, and this is great to have something to look forward to. So I wouldn't have fallen asleep at six p.m. So thank you again. <laughs> Well, I'm glad uh, that the alarm could uh, go off for me finally. Uh, so uh, thank, thank the uh, the next person, Mr. Mike LeColon, who uh, saved by the Mike LeColon Brooklyn Trolley Blogger Bell. <laughs> what is your final word, Mike? Peace on earth. That's it. Peace on earth. I, I wish everyone well. I wish everyone peace and everyone calm. Uh, we got the new year coming up, so let's all try to make it better than the last. That's really where my mind is at. Winding down uh, what's become a, you know, a rather uncommon era for many of us. So just looking towards the future and better days. Thank you, Mike, and thank you uh, both for being on tonight. Uh, I'm really glad that we can come together, talk uh, Brooklyn, Dodgers, or otherwise uh, on this podcast uh, before the new year comes. And uh, all I can say is thank you. That is my final word to everybody out there. Thank you for continuing to listen to the Bedford & Sullivan podcast, Uh, 150 episodes. I'm flabbergasted that I couldn't get there sooner, but at the same time, pretty awesome. We've got some pretty interesting stuff on here uh, regarding the research process of the story of Brooklyn and their Dodgers, and we're going to continue to to try to put this thing together so we can get some material out there, whether it be a radio drama, whether it be a comic book first, uh, or whether it be a television show. That's how we're going to attempt to bring you this story along with these podcasts that continue to keep you active listeners. So thank you again for continuing to listen. And again, thank you, Michael Colant. Thank you, Rob Barnes. Good night, everybody. Take care. Peace on earth. Happy New Year. Let's go, Brooklyn. Good night, guys. Good night, guys. Good night, all. Happy New Year. <laughs>